has done. Uh, so he's, he brings a very international, very cosmopolitan eye to thinking about Thomas Keneally as a figure, as an author, as a literary celebrity. So as I said, we're very proud of uh, Paul's book in our series, and I want to commend to you um, the order sheets, which are just out in the foyer, just outside the door to the right. If you want to be the proud owner of one of these titles, of Paul's book, uh, that's the best way to do it. You might have seen the flyers as you came in. Notably, those flyers allow you a 20% discount. <clears throat> Crucial, because you may know that scholarly books in the contemporary market can be expensive. Uh, so it's really worth, if you want to invest in this book, now's the chance. So pick up one of those flyers on your way out if you want to, uh, and I will feel like my work here uh, has been fruitful. So uh, in, the, in the meantime, please let me uh, join you in welcoming uh, Professor Paul Sharrod to uh, the stand here to let him talk to you about uh, the wonderful time I'm sure he had in Keneally's archive. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Nat and Nicole, for the introductions. And I, too, would like to acknowledge uh, being on Animal Country. If I can get out of this uh, particular visual, uh, let's see, no, Nat, what am I doing here, come on, <laughs> sorry, there we are, here we go. Um, so I thought I would spend the next 40 minutes uh, talking a little bit about why the project began, uh, what's in the book. Uh, and the nature of the literary career, and if there's time, finish up with some gems from the National Library collection uh, that I managed to ferret out. It was a case of ferreting out because it was a huge mix of uh, everything Tom ever shoved in a box. Um, so uh, this is the book, and thank you very much to the National Library and various other libraries for indulging me in travelling through a whole lot of paper and bothering a whole lot of people who were all extremely helpful. Also thanks to the Australia Research Council who funded some of the uh, trips to libraries to get the material. So what started the project? Well, uh, looking around, most of you probably had similar experience to me uh, where when you were doing undergraduate studies uh, there wasn't a lot of Australian material being taught. Uh, in my case, I was still uh, becoming a junior lecturer in a place where the professor was telling me there was no Australian literature and what there was he read on the plane out and that was, <laughs> and that was D. H. Lawrence. Um, so uh, a lot of this it comes from a kind of similarly national culturalist background, I suppose, as Tom's, although Tom is a good deal older than me. Um, that it, it is a tracking of an engagement with national history and the building of national culture. Through the 1960s, which is when Tom began his literary career, uh, when it is worth remembering, uh, there were no uh, formal literary agents uh, in Australia at the time, uh, that Thea Astley, Patrick White were just coming on stream as the new wave of Australian writing. Uh, replacing people like the, uh, you know, the romantic realists like Eleanor Dark and Kylie Tennant and, and so forth, uh, that there was a huge uh, shock, if you like, uh, which some of you may well remember, 
when uh, White and Keneally and Astley first came on stream of, as stylists, as people interested in metaphysical questions, that, um, that the field of Australian literature was not established as a formal body of study. We had had literary journals around since the 1940s, like Mianjin, uh, but the, it was still the case that until late 60s, uh, there were no professors of Australian literature. And, uh, and so Tom was coming in to a field that, as a novice, uh, he saw as very much a vacant lot, um, and a vacant lot in which it was still, as uh, Henry Lawson once said, uh, extremely difficult to make a living as a writer. Uh, his advice was to look in a mirror and shoot yourself, or go to London. Uh, and part of Tom's strategy eventually uh, involved going overseas, which of course carries with it its own particular uh, struggles and issues. But um, th this is simply just to explain this one. This is the Commonwealth Literature uh, Fellowship, uh, which was originally a pension for old and indigent writers. It was transformed in the 30s. Uh, as a way of promoting Australian literature. If you won one, you had the job of going around to country towns giving lectures about Australian writers. Uh, as, and these are the, uh, the old Gestetnard uh, sheets advertising Tom's trips around the north of New South Wales, um, part of which, of course, set him up for um, discovering the story of the Governor Brothers, which became uh, Jimmy Blacksmith. But it was very much a kind of amateur uh, do-it-yourself project in developing Australian literature at the time. Uh, and when Bring Larks and Heroes came out, uh, it was taken as, you know, in, to quote one reviewer, the great Australian novel. Uh, it was, uh, as uh, in this case, it's Max Harris saying, I've collated the reviews and Modest Thomas must surely be reeling under the machine gun stutter of superlatives. Uh, there was another letter in the files upstairs from Charmin Clift saying, uh, I wish you a hundred shy granddaughters, hedges uh, bursting with larks, and as many heroes as you can sing. I am ravished. Oh, sir, we have been waiting for you. Uh, so... <laughs> It was the publishing event of 1967, uh, it was at the time. Uh, and uh, as one of my colleagues, uh, slightly younger than me, said, the reason she's a, a literary lecturer um, <clears throat> today is because she was so enthused by reading Bring Larks and Heroes in her honours year of study. So he goes on, of course, to become... Uh, the writer that Australia could no longer ignore by winning the Booker Prize, the local boy makes good, etc. Uh, but following that, there does become, certainly from an academic side of things, uh, a sort of wondering about whatever happened to, which is kind of ironic because, and this is part of what the book explores, here we have somebody who everybody knows uh, everybody's seen him on television, everybody's heard him on radio, he's in every second newspaper having an opinion on something. Um, but uh, in terms of scholarship, in terms of teaching of texts and so forth, there is a sense that he has faded from view. Um, just to do an interesting uh, 
experiment. This is probably a self-selecting audience which is going to prove me wrong. Hands up those of you who have read some Tom Keneally. Okay. Uh, hands up if you've read something more than Schindler's Ark. All right. Hands up if you've read something more than Schindler's Ark and Jimmy Blacksmith. You know, we're starting to thin down. <laughs> um, I, I did a survey of uh, two writers' festivals, in fact, uh, obviously across a sl slightly less self-selecting uh, group than is here uh, and across a wider range of ages. And uh, apart from Schindler's Ark and Jimmy Blacksmith, it was remarkable how few people had read any Keneally, uh, even though they all knew who he was, uh, which is part of what got me interested in looking at the nature of his career. Uh, uh, to quote one other of my academic colleagues, uh, when I was spouting forth about the joys of Tom Keneally, he sort of leaned back at the back of the lecture theatre and said, who would want to read Tom Keneally? Uh, which I think was typical of a certain academic hauteur uh, in relation to somebody who was seen as being a popular writer. Uh, what then became interesting to me in looking through the collection of papers with his publishers, the papers upstairs which are full of his royalty slips, uh, is that he's not actually as successful in sales as one might think. But nonetheless, he has persisted over 50 years of producing almost a book a year and sometimes three books a year. So what is the nature of this career? How does it work? How did he survive? Um, becomes what the book is actually about. And, uh, uh, okay, just jump back. Uh, so it's about the shape of a career. It's about the nature of a literary career. Uh, it's a mixture of literary criticism, literary history, literary biography, uh, none of those three and all of those three, plus, as the title of the book suggests, it's about what we can loosely think of as the literary machine. All those programs and sub-programs and routines that mesh together to produce uh, novels, in this case, and plays and films, uh, which is one of the points about his career. It's not just as a novelist, even though we all know him as a novelist. Uh, so what is the shape of the career? What are the factors that influence it? One of the things is obviously personality of the author. Uh, Tom talks about himself as being impulsive. He says it's the thing that gets the books written. It's also the thing that perhaps makes the books not necessarily as perfect as some critics might like them to be. Um, he's a person person, which informs his love of colourful characters. Uh, and some of you will have read his uh, histories, The Australians, and the point he makes in that is that Australian history might be boring, but Australians aren't. They're full of colourful characters, and that's what drives a lot of his, uh, his literary interest. Uh, so that he writes a book, for example, called The American Scoundrel, uh, which is based on a Civil War-era personality who managed to shoot somebody in public in Washington and get away with it, uh, and lived a very colourful life in the process. Um, as a people person, he's also very loyal to his friends, and sometimes that's got him in trouble across his career as it clashes with the machineries of you know, the impersonal side of publishing. Um, one indication of, of how he is the congenial, personal uh, chap that he's, his public image is, uh, is a book called um, The Utility Player. 
Anyone read it? There we go. So we're in Canberra, we're not in New South Wales. Uh, Tom, as, as many of you will know, is, is a sports fanatic, a number one hold, a card holder for the, um, what is it? Um, anyway, some rugby team. <laughs> I was born in South Australia. Um, and uh, rugby league. And one of the players in his team at the time uh, was Des Hasler. Uh, Des went through a slump in his career at some point, and Tom basically wrote his biography. Uh, published the book and gave half the proceeds to Des. Um, so it's that kind of personality which influences many of the choices across his career. Uh, this, this intersects obviously with agents. Uh, again, as a person person, he gets on very well with a lot of his agents. They become family members almost. He's devastated when they die in a couple of cases and is forced to move uh, often to another publisher at the same time. He got a lot of flack, particularly from people like Patrick White, as being you know, disloyal, ungentlemanly, etc., etc. Um, but looking at his, his career and the way he thinks and the way he reacts uh, to the professional side of things uh, very much explains some of the shifts across that career. Um, as I said, there were no agents when he started writing. He was his own agent that got him into a lot of flack as he starts to realise that, uh, that most publishing went through England, uh, that his first publisher, Castle, only had a sort of local uh, department here where it was run from London, that his royalties were a cut rate of what sales he would get selling in England and so forth. So he becomes very um, politicised, if you like, in cultural terms. Uh, as an Australian writer, uh, working across, at, at least at that point, two markets and fights for his, uh, his rights. Uh, the publishing culture, obviously, once you move across two cultures or even within Australia at the time, is part of the machinery. That there was a sense of loyalty as an Australian writer that you were published with an Australian publisher. That, of course, could have a cost in terms of how many people you would reach, uh, how many sales you might expect. Uh, most publishers worked, as I said, through a London central office, so he's already, whether he likes it or not, involved in two uh, venues for publishing, two audiences, and uh, there are different cultures at the time, uh, both within Australia and across to England. England very much the old handshake gentleman's agreement kind of publishing, lunches, etc. Uh, and as he has his own rights to America, he's also looking to get more readers, many more readers in some cases, in, in the States. Uh, but the culture in the States is quite different. It's much more marketing-oriented. So at some point he says to his, his English publisher, you know, I'm, I'm in America talking to my publishers there. You know, can I come over and I'll do a few signings for you? And, and there's this sort of rather Britannic response saying, oh, dear boy, you know, we don't spend money on such things. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the reviews that sell books. Uh, well, part of the publishing industry obviously changes. He is caught up in those changes, and sometimes he wins because of that, uh, that shift to a much more marketing-oriented um, publishing industry. Uh, he does probably well in, in America because of that. Uh, he starts to get disaffected with his British publishers because of their old guard, if you like, attitude to publishing. 
that the, his common feeling is that they're not marketing him well enough, uh, that the reviews say he's great, but the sales don't indicate that. Um, the other thing that comes into play is the very mechanical thing, and sometimes the authors don't have control of this themselves, but covers. Uh, covers can sell books, they can kill books. Uh, this book was The Playmaker, and these are, this was a draft for the cover uh, of one edition. This was the sketch for the British edition. Uh, as you can see, it's very much playing with a sort of 18th century uh, look, and uh, we never quite knew what the, uh, the iguana was doing uh, in, in the front of the cover. But very, very gothic. Uh, you can see there, there are hangman's, hangman's nooses in the... Um, what is it, your top right corner, and so forth. Uh, it came out looking like this from England. Tom was pretty irate. Uh, he said it made it, made it look like a, a dress-up uh, Georgette Heyer um, historical romance, which is exactly what he wasn't trying to do. Um, this was the compromise that came out in Australia where he took the original uh, performance of the recruiting officer, the first play staged in Australia, uh, and covered up some of the illustration. Uh, the other problem was that, uh, as you can see from the text there, he was trying to uh, allegorise it or mythicise the founding of Australia as a kind of space trip that, as he put it, you know, in, in 1788, founding a colony in Australia was a bit like the moon landing. It was the other side of the world. It had been unexplored, etc. Uh, and so he didn't really want his story to be visibly set in Australia, and certainly a cover like that uh, blew his cover, as it were, um, and he wasn't very happy about it. Uh, the other thing is that his Collins publisher, again, from a British sense of what was literary, uh, marked, marked the literariness with these rather bleak... <laughs> Um, probably not very uh, attractive in the bookshop uh, covers. So, you know, s small mechanical uh, decisions like this um, could affect the literary career and certainly affected him from time to time. But you can see how these would have positioned him as a literary writer uh, when, in many cases, uh, he was moving to a much more commercial side of, of producing writing and being... Uh, hit over the head by, by certainly academic critics for producing far too much, far too often, far too quickly. Um, so he's playing between that idea of commercial identity and literary identity. Um, the market, eventually he's marketing across three major um, countries uh, and that causes all sorts of problems so that um, at one point, if you look at the manuscripts upstairs, he's going through the copy edits from, uh, I think it was one of the Collins editors, uh, and who's asking you know, questions. You know, Does this mean such and such? <laughs> the, the annotation is, guess you, pommy fuckwit. <laughs> um, so that kind of clash, and, and, and equally with, with the American publishers as well, who are demanding more explanation of what all this Australian stuff is, um, or this, this novel doesn't have enough American characters to sell, etc., etc. Uh, so how do you juggle those three different sets of demands on you? Of course, the Australian audience is saying, you have to be Australian, we need Australian language, and so forth, um, and stay loyal to your own 
your own country. So the, um, the other things you can take into account are things like technology. Uh, if you look at the papers upstairs, you get a history of, of writing technology. He starts as a, an indigent person, uh, kicked out from seminary with no job, writing on scraps of paper in pencil, in biro, uh, on full scap, in scrapbooks, on the back of uh, school examination papers when he became a teacher. Uh, uh, eventually hires a typist who's still, offer, still working with um, those old blue uh, carbon copies. Um, you can see all the telegrams that flow to and fro, and uh, if I were talking to undergraduate students, they would say, what's a telegram? <laughs> um, with no idea of how costly they were, uh, how things could go wrong. A lot of his career is, in fact, mapped uh, by mail going astray. Um, it, it reads like a Victorian novel sometimes. So that while he's, um, while he's arguing the toss with one of his agents, uh, it turns out that the agent has just died and then he has to sort of, you know, the, the, the letters cross in the post and so forth and, and, and this causes understandable ructions at both, both ends. Uh, so there's that, and, and then the fax machine comes into play. And he, at this point in the 90s, he's teaching in America. Uh, he's also holding down a position on the literature board of the Australian Council. He is becoming president of the Australian Republican movement. That would not be possible without the fax machine. Right? Um, so certain career changes uh, open up because simply of simply because of technology. Uh, eventually he takes on dictaphones, which of course help him to produce the rapid rates of novels that he is famous for. Um, but it doesn't solve everything. Uh, he has a secretary in his American university who's typing his manuscripts from dictaphones. <laughs> the American sense of his Irish-Australian accent produces some very strange copy. Uh, so he doesn't really save time because he has to go back and correct it all. So there's, a, again, this is the mechanics uh, of making what we don't see uh, as the overall literary career. Um, the other aspect of, of his career is, of course, he is known for his politics. He's very much been a New South Wales Labor man. Uh, he is actually in that photo, if you look for the, the uh, black rimmed glasses and the bald head. Uh, he's there at the Bankstown uh, launch for Gough Whitlam's uh, election campaign. And eventually he becomes, as I said, the president of the Australian Republican movement, uh, deliberately picked by politicians because he was a cultural figure, not a politician, uh, supposedly a neutral uh, figure. But, I mean, in terms of a literary career, this creates interesting challenges. Uh, once you put your flag up like that, you possibly have your audience. And certainly he got a lot of flack in, in reviews um, from America when he was perceived as being anti-American in his politics. Um, in Australia, you could almost bet that Quadrant would give him a pasting, um, whereas something like the Sydney Morning Herald would give him a good review and so forth. Uh, so it was a risky strategy if, if you were trying to be a successful writer. Uh, but it's one that he managed across, as I say, 50 years with some degree of success. Um, 
Reviewers obviously play a part in the literary career and what's become interesting to me is looking across the range of reviews across different countries. Um, he went public various times in Australia uh, complaining about the treatment he got from certain selected reviewers particularly uh, and that created a you know, big media debate of course the, who was saying you know, what's he complaining for, why doesn't he just toughen up, why didn't, you know, uh, he should be more Australian, not worry about his overseas market, etc., etc., uh, or he should just damn well write better. Um, and uh, if you look at the reviews, it's very clear that he, ha he complains with some justification about Australian reviewers, that if they are against him, they are against him in a much more personal and vituperative manner than the British who are against him. Um, so there is a kind of culture of reviewing, if you like, uh, where the gentleman reviewer is, is, is located, um, and historically it was the gentleman reviewer, um, not always. Um, there are differences from America to Britain to Australia. The Americans are much more friendly as reviewers, uh, will concentrate much more on the book rather than the author. Um, so there are these differences that you have to learn to live with, um, and if you look at the reviews, every book has some reviewer saying this is the best thing Tom, re Tom has ever produced, and that same book will get somebody else saying this is garbage. <laughs> you cannot win. <laughs> but there are lessons to be learned if you look across uh, the range of reviewing. Uh, certainly the common thread is that uh, he tends towards a melodramatic flourish at the end of his novels, which sometimes needs to be brought under control. Uh, that he, he, the rapid rate of uh, production does sometimes compromise the structuring of his work uh, and so forth. The pacing sometimes comes in for criticism. Uh, one of the early th uh, complaints was that he was too grim and too violent. Uh, now, if you're writing about the convict era or you're writing about the Second World War, uh, what else are you going to be? Uh, but again, culturally, there was a sense among many Australian reviewers at the time that um, one should really not hang, out, hang one's dirty linen out in public, that if you were going to be an Australian novelist, you should you know, be a positive one, that you shouldn't be so nihilistic, that Australia was this nice new country, we should all be looking to the sunshine in the future. Uh, so he did get a lot of flack for that. He also got a lot of flack, um, deservedly, I think, for being an unreconstructed 1950s sexist. And he admits this across his career, and one of the things that you see happening in, uh, across his career is an attempt to self-correct in terms of gender rep representation. And um, one of the novels that indicates that was called The Woman of the Inner Sea, uh, where he talks about um, uh, violence against women and, and uh, the, the survivor of a particular woman. Anyone read that one? There you go, proves my point. Um, the Americans loved it, uh, but it didn't, uh, it didn't do very well here. Partly because, again, he was playing with certain Australian stereotypes which sold well in, in America, but were pretty cliched for an Australian audience, I think. Um, but he was also trying a certain postmodern experiment in that book um, where he addresses Dear Book Buyer, and steps out of the story and, and you know, takes this, this authorial persona. Um, and a lot of uh, his editors had a great deal of trouble with that. Um, 
and a lot of the reviewers uh, also just wanted a straight uh, romance adventure, uh, as it were. So he, he, again, he's playing, he, he never gives up on the kind of experimental side of literary writing while he is also trying to sell books to a wide range of people. And that's part of the nature of his career. Um, questions about, oh, hello, hello, okay. Um, questions about what is a literary career uh, underpin the book, or the thinking uh, behind it. Um, what, is, what are the assumptions of a proper literary career? Well, here you can see him sideways as the cook acting in the film of The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. Uh, he also was an actor in, uh, as a Catholic priest in an early film. Um, I think it was one of uh, Fred Skepsi's very earliest um, productions. And from, from an academic literary point of view, uh, this is an image of a sort of dilettante, somebody who you know is prepared to have fun. He's not a serious figure. Um, whereas, certainly in his early days, uh, he did inhabit the role of the serious literary figure. Um, this is literally the, you know, the writer in his garret, except it's the backyard in, in Ryde at the time. And at the time also, he had that sort of bald, bespectacled, nerdy sort of look, uh, which was appropriate for what we expected of a literary novelist. Um, increasingly, he repudiates this, this image. Um, he repudiates the, uh, the role he was given as the successor to Patrick White, probably partly because Patrick, Patrick White was really rude about him, uh, although he's rude about plenty of other people. Um, but uh, he, he, as he read more and more of White, he became more and more disenchanted with what he thought was a, a fairly you know, overly artificed uh, production. Uh, overly nihilist kind of view of the world and resolved to be more cheerful, uh, more demotic in his language, uh, less tortured in his, in his metaphors, if you like, um, than he was in his early writing uh, in the hope also of selling more books. But um, in, in making that move and becoming, here we are, it's the Sea Eagles, um, the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles Rugby League. Um, in taking on this kind of populist image, uh, he also compromises to some extent the place we are prepared to assign him uh, as a literary figure. Um, and the question then comes, how do we position somebody who becomes a public celebrity? Uh, is that celebrity at the price of uh, writing or does it sell more books? Uh, are the two mutually supportive or mutually disjunctive? Uh, this I think becomes interesting when, he, when his books become filmed and I think there's a very strong argument that The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith when it was filmed worked for the book, preserved his role as a, as a novelist, um, helped the novel to sell, it went into classrooms of course uh, for at least one generation, uh, but when Schindler was filmed, it became um, Spielberg's Schindler. And all the reviews thereafter talk about the film, they don't talk about the novel or the novelist, except to tell the story of how Tom 
got to tell the story that became the book of the film. Um, so there's this kind of double game in the, in the literary career of uh, how, how popular you can be and get away <laughs> with it, um, especially in terms of film. The other point, I think, about uh, the nature of his career is that it has, despite the literary pretensions, which, as I say, he never gives up, it's always been about the money. Uh, if you read the biography um, by Stephanie Steele uh, of Tom, uh, she spends a lot of time sort of going into the psychology of his early days, uh, presenting him as a, an unusually tortured figure that, that is very much not the, the public genial um, leprechaun that he is often represented as these days in the press. Um, but he, wa he, he was unable to complete his training for the priesthood. He went into a catatonic state um, and just had to leave. Uh, they wouldn't give him a reference. They said, oh, no, we, the church doesn't do that. So he was on the street with no prospects. Uh, and I think that has underpinned his drive to keep producing, to keep earning, uh, to support the family and so forth right across his career. And in a sense, he says at one point that the more successful you get, the faster you have to spin the wheel to stay, you know, to stay running. Um, that uh, the costs mount up. That his work for Schindler's Ark uh, involved a hell of an amount of travel, a lot of reviewing, of, of uh, interviewing of uh, Holocaust survivors. Um, that the money he made from it, which looks very, very handsome, uh, he probably only banked about a quarter of that. Um, he especially only banked uh, a pr small proportion uh, because he had agreed with some of the promoters behind the book that he would split the money uh, and much of that money would go towards um, Holocaust survivor support and so forth. Um, so he's always been writing to earn an income. Uh, this is an interesting sort of link with the National Library in this case, insofar as uh, in, the, the picture up there, in fact, is his first, um, first royalty check. Uh, still in shillings and pounds, as you can see. Uh, 15, was it three pounds, 15 shillings and 11 pence. Uh, but these were the days when, you know, I think it was something like, uh, uh, was it 12,000 pounds was, was an annual salary. Uh, so it wasn't too bad. Um, but uh, he, he kept very, very close tabs on his income. Um, and uh, even when, uh, when he moved it towards agents to look after, he was still tracking uh, how soon he could put out the next book in order to keep the bank balance afloat. Uh, the, the National Library story comes in very early on when he'd sold some manuscripts of uh, Jimmy Blacksmith and some editorial letters from Douglas Stewart, for, who was at uh, Angus and Robertson, uh, for $250 uh, to the State Library of New South Wales, to the Mitchell. Uh, he then saw some letters from the National Library to other writers, which had been offering uh, about $1,000 for manuscripts. Uh, so he went back to the Mitchell and said, hang on a minute, <laughs> I want more. And they said, oh, no, 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 you've already had, <laughs> we've already signed off on this, you can't have any more. Um, so he then uh, gave his next batch to the Friar Library 
which gave him a much more handsome uh, amount of money. And, and again, as I say, if, if, if you follow the paper trail, not every book, but sort of by no means every book made a profit for the publisher. Um, so how does he keep publishers interested? Obviously, once you win the booker, that helps. Uh, his, his name moves to the top of the cover of a book instead of at the bottom. Um, he becomes an identity. The identity becomes bankable, irrespective of what the book is uh, from that point on. But until that point, at least, uh, the publishers weren't necessarily making a lot of money out of him, but he was managed to, managing to stay afloat because he was always working the next advance from sometimes another publisher. So he was staying afloat, uh, but staying afloat by you know, floating nicely along the surface and paddling frantically underneath um, and, and working across a whole, whole range of uh, activities like script writing, which could earn you a lot of money even if the film never happened, as, as was his case many times, um, television writing, uh, sometimes work for radio, certainly journalism, and so forth. Um, and, and confessing to that commercial side of things, uh, again, in terms of cultural politics, in terms of academic ideas of what a literary career should be, uh, put him very much in a commercial camp, which was definitely not Bryce Courtney. If you look at um, the book reviews, if you look at sales, if you look at so, you know, um, all sorts of attitudes to that, uh, he's very much positioned sort of somewhere south of David Malouf, um, not too far south of Peter Carey, um, but definitely north of um, Bryce Courtney, uh, Colin McCulloch, etc., etc. Um, so he's, he's in this interesting position of what we have now come to call a middle-brow writer, which is a very flexible, indeterminate sort of place, and he tends to fluctuate from one side to the other as he goes along, uh, although increasingly he slides towards the populist commercial uh, writer. But within that sense of the career, there are things we should remember. Uh, he produced this little book from Angus and Robertson. It's called A Dutiful Daughter. Anyone read it? Yay, okay. For my money, it's the first magic realist novel ever published in Australia. Um, probably an influence for David Ireland, who went on to do other similar things. It's a fantastical thing in which some of the characters become uh, cows, right? Um, obviously, you can see how Angus and Robertson, again, produced it as a literary book. It's not huge. It's got a nice, dark, mysterious cover. And if you look at the, what, uh, interestingly, the text classics of edition have, have done to this, they chose it because it was experimental uh, to uh, remarket it, and the new cover is nice and bright and cheery and yellow. Uh, so uh, how, how we read these books becomes part of how a career is constructed as well. Um, this was very much a high art literary experiment at the time. Um, now it seems to become a much more popular thing because we all know what Salman Rushdie's done and, and uh, so forth. Uh, magic realism sells. He also, uh, in 1980, produced this thing. 
right? <laughs> Published by the Bulletin. Uh, it's called The Cutrate Kingdom. It's a novel. Uh, it was a historical novel set during wartime, set in Canberra, in fact, and it's full of bulletin-type illustrations. And what he was trying to do was produce uh, something which academic publishing cannot produce, and that was a cheap book um, at a time when prices in Australia were starting to go up, uh, and also to produce really an experiment in a kind of an illustrated novel. Uh, it's a historical novel with historical illustrations in very much newsprint style. Uh, it was an experiment. It sold for $2.50 at the time. It was the, very much an experimental period in, in Australian publishing when you had a lot of literary magazines, small magazines, small presses starting to happen. Uh, it didn't go too well, but it did so, sell a lot of copies. It sold enough copies for him to set up a, uh, a scholarship, uh, an award for, for some writers. Um, but uh, again, in terms of uh, how a career can work or not work for you, Alan Lane took this up as a hardback, but took it up years later, um, after he had won the Booker. And of course, by then, nobody remembered that it had first come out in Australia and said, oh, this is rubbish. <laughs> this is not, not anything like the greatness of Schindler's Ark. Well, no. <laughs> so this is kind of amnesia that often happens with, with a writer's career. Uh, which happens a couple of times in, in Tom's case and gets in the way of, of a kind of continuity of his presence in the market. Um, so he has been a particularly interesting novelist, even though we might think of him now as, as a kind of run-of-the-mill uh, populist. Um, I'll, uh, I'll start reducing my material uh, because we are getting on with time. I'm supposed to be finishing about now. Uh, so I just thought I'd move quickly to some of the uh, some of the joys of working upstairs. Uh, this was, at the time, the collection of papers of Tom Keneally. Well, it's part of the, part of the collection. There's another, another number somewhere else. Uh, they're all now off-site, but um, I had the pleasure of working through this lot. <laughs> More dust than you can think of. Probably a few superfishes crept in there as well. But um, fascinating. Um, all the manuscripts often, again, cut and pasted manually, bits of paper stuck on um, in the early days, which then become uh, computer text uh, as, as you go along. Uh, it becomes harder to track. I mean, uh, one of the things we'll close with is just thinking about some of the problems of doing the research. Uh, and I'll come back to that. But um, the other aspect of it is it is a huge mess. At least it was in that initial phase. Everything he ever collected um, was thrown in a box somewhere. And you can see he's got um, some cufflinks from his family history. Uh, there's a copy of the um, memorial plaque that's outside the Opera House in Sydney. There are sporting tickets. There are tickets to the cricket. Um, there's the stuff from the Republican movement and so forth. There's his old school tie from St. Patrick's. Uh, so it's all there, um, as I said, in largely an unsorted way. And one of my... <laughs> 
one of my moments of uh, horror was when I came to finish the book and started doing the footnotes and discovered that a lot of this had been organised. So some of the boxes didn't contain what I thought they once contained. Um, so if you're happening to check the footnotes in my book, be warned, you'll have to go back and double check some of the boxes upstairs. But um, some, some of the interest, points of interest, uh, the Catholic material, this is a shilling which was given to him by Archbishop Gilroy uh, in 1942 when Gilroy was going around canvassing people, you know, canvassing children as they were then for the priesthood. Um, and there are many other bits of Catholic paraphernalia through his, uh, through his archives. Uh, here he is in, um, in his training for the priesthood role, robes. Uh, it was during that time that he indulged in a little bit of um, drama. In fact, he directed a Shakespearean play because Shakespeare was the only thing allowed in literary form in the seminary. Um, so that took him into drama later on. Uh, one of the things that runs through his career is, um, and again, this is evident in a lot of the correspondence upstairs with his editors, is the drive to pseudonym. Um, we, it's, it's not sort of something we think about too much these days, but he was constantly badgering his, his um, editors saying, I want this book to come out under a pseudonym. Um, this is the name that he started writing under, the coil is his mother's name. Um, and initially it was a cover. Um, he thought he'd shamed his family quite enough by uh, bailing out from the priesthood. Uh, he didn't want to shame them anymore by going public as a novelist and perhaps failing at that too, especially when some of the novels were exposing the Catholic Church in a rather, uh, shall we say, humorous light. Um, but the, this idea persisted through his career and, and one of the constant things was, this book is a popular book. I want this to come out under a different name because my literary books should come under, under Tom Keneally. And the publishers kept saying, oh, no, 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 just keep doing the same thing. Well, it's quite possible that he would have been more consistently successful had he managed to double brand himself. Um, uh, this book, in fact, is one of two that came out through um, Carmen Khalil uh, and where was she at the time? I forget, one of the London publishers. Um, because he had so many books on contract already with Hodder and Stoughton that he couldn't squeeze another one in. And at the time, he had invested in a, a guest house in the Blue Mountains, which was going rapidly broke, so he needed cash. <laughs> so he put this novel out and another one uh, under this pseudonym and caused you know, many scratchings of heads, particularly when the second novel uh, said it was Tom Keneally in the back cover. Um, the second novel was what he claimed it was, um, namely a pot boiler that he was throwing out. This one wasn't. This one he'd actually planned as part of his normal publishing uh, series. Um, it's not a bad novel, in fact. Um, uh, as you can see, it, it continues his very strong theme of war. He grew up during the war and was influenced by that. Uh, and you can see from the, the artwork how it's also uh, carrying on some of his interest in, uh, in religion with that cross formation there. Um, one of the characters is a nun, the other character is an airman. So that, that idea of a double personality does, does continue through, uh, coloured by the fact that he, he's thinking of himself as, as performing for a double market. Other jo joys from upstairs. 
this wonderful letter from Patrick White. As I say, Patrick had been very rude about him. Uh, Tom finally uh, put his tongue in his cheek and sent him a congratulatory letter when he won the Nobel Prize. Paddy uh, responded with this card. Nobel Prize for Literature is uh, more destructive for the writer than can happen to anyone, so be warned. Yours, Patrick. Um, he wrote a book about Ethiopia, the war at the time uh, for Eritrean independence called um, Towards Asmara, uh, which became a, uh, an important political text in, in creating international consciousness about what was going on. Uh, it was in fact distributed by the Eritrean government to uh, overseas observers when they had their first elections to, uh, to celebrate their independence. And this is a card he got from, uh, from Audrey Hepburn, who was also an activist uh, in, the, uh, in the campaign at the time, uh, thanking him for his work and for his novel. Uh, he also, particularly when he became the honorary um, historian for Irish Australia, if not Ireland, uh, wrote a book, huge book called The Great Shame, uh, which went to both uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Hillary. Uh, they both read it, and this is a thanks from Bill uh, for that novel. Uh, Hillary, in fact, uh, featured in the celebratory um, film that was staged uh, for his 50th year of, uh, of publishing. So uh, he was an extremely well-connected person by the time he uh, reached the latter stages of his career. Um, and it didn't always reflect uh, on his uh, literary success, but uh, it is a success that has ranged across a whole range of genres, um, across a public platform, and leaves open a number of areas of research, which I think um, remain. The, the, his work for the stage, I think, has been under-examined. Uh, under Susan Lever is, in fact, working on a, a book about his work with radio and television and other Australian writers. Um, his role as a professional advocate in the Australian Society of Authors and the National Book Council and so forth, I think, could well be uh, looked at. Um, he worked on constitutional committees for the government and toured, toured around Australia on some of those uh, interviewing panels. Um, and uh, I think there's still a literary book uh, open for somebody who wants to write about his novels after the booker. And that's it. Thank you. Um, thank you, Paul. That was fantastic. Very um, thorough, and as you can see, the scope of the Tom Keneally collection here, it's, it's phenomenal. To have got through it, well, well done for getting through it, for a start. Um, and it stresses the importance of libraries collecting whole archives, even if, unfortunately, they do contain rugby tickets and <laughs> stubs from one thing and another. I mean, at some point, somebody's going to digest all this material. And, and through finding aids and exploded finding aids and things nowadays, people will be able to find it a lot better through Trove. So, you know, that's the good news. Now, 